everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm actually doing pretty good. A lot of you were kind enough to write to me and let me know how much you enjoyed the last episode, and I really appreciate that. In fact, I enjoyed hearing from you guys so much that I decided to make yet another way for you to get into touch with us. So now, in addition to being all up in every nook and cranny of the internet like it was a Thomas's English muffin and we were something you put on top of a Thomas's English muffin? Butter? Sure, let's say butter. We now have a way to receive physical mail. That's right. If you want to write us an actual letter like it was olden times, you can now do so. We can be reached at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. That's Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. For all your sending us physical mail needs. So when I went down to the post office to sign up for this mailbox, it took me to a section of town that I hadn't been to in quite some time, and I was really surprised to see that there is still a place called the Old Spaghetti Factory that is still in business. I felt like something like 20 years ago, we kind of collectively realized that that is the worst possible name for a restaurant, and all stopped going there. I've actually never been to one, despite the fact that Corey actually used to work there. But when you think about that name, it is either applying the word old to the factory, as in, this factory has fallen into disuse because nobody wanted to buy their spaghetti, or it's the descriptor of the word spaghetti, and it's a factory that makes old spaghetti. Either one of these is a very alarming development, and not one that is particularly exciting to the appetite. It also sounds kind of like the place where the Hardy Boys might go to solve a crime. You know, the mystery of the old spaghetti factory. Smugglers are probably using it. Oh, what are they smuggling? New spaghetti. Because there's a market for that. Anyway, that's enough of that malarkey. If you have any thoughts on spaghetti you'd like to share with us, we can be reached at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. Now, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Dimitri Bardu. Kronos from Venom has a voice that's been known to stop ships. Now listen to the siren song of this synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Dimitri. You certainly exist and aren't a name that I made up because nobody sent in any synopsis rhymes in a little while. Thanks. Defenders, number 61, July 1978. Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Lunatic. Written by David Anthony Kraft. Drotted by Ed Hannigan. Inked by Bob Lubbers. Colored by Nell Yomtov. Lettered by Rick Parker and edited by Jim Shooter. Defensive lineup. Valkyrie. The Incredible Hulk. Nighthawk. Hellcat. And Spider-Man. Previously in the Defenders. 
Sorceress the Scandinavian swordslinger Valkyrie decided to further her education by enrolling in classes at Empire State University. The Azir undergrad befriended a pair of peculiar film students named Ledge and Dollar Bill, who introduced her both to the world of cinema and to a creepy drama professor named Harrison Turk. During her studies at ESU, Val also ran afoul of a lunatic with a C named Lunatic with a K, a hyper-violent campus vigilante who killed or maimed co-eds for committing minor infractions. When Valkyrie confronted the appropriately named asshole, Lunatic smashed Ledge's head in with a metal pole and escaped into the subway, making a series of random pop culture references as he did so. While Valkyrie dealt with the aftermath of this fleet-footed frenetic foe, the rest of her non-teammates were assisting Namor on a sub-aquatic sojourn to rescue his undersea kingdom from an unknown atomic adversary whose radiation had been poisoning the waters of Atlantis. Their journey led our heroes to an encounter with a Slavic super-scientist scumbag named Sergei. Sergei was a real piece of shit who had kidnapped former defender Dr. Tanya Belinsky, aka the Red Guardian, and mind-controlled her into being his girlfriend. Fuck that guy! As if to illustrate that free will and consent were not the only concepts that Sergei had no understanding of, the Russian reprobate also displayed his ignorance of pseudonyms by adopting the baffling nom de guerre, Codename Sergei. What a fucknut! Codename Fucknut imbued himself and the Red Guardian with near-infinite nuclear powers and beat up Namor and the Defenders. Just when things seemed hopeless for our harried heroes, Tanya finally broke free from codename dipshit psychic subjugation and told the diabolical dipshit to fuck off. Displaying the type of fragility that often accompanies extreme entitlement, codename Mopey Fuckwit hopped in his flying chair and fucked off for parts unknown. Hooray! The Red Guardian remained in Russia under quarantine until scientists could reduce her radioactivity, while the rest of her erstwhile non-teammates returned stateside to regroup. Once reunited with their Azir undergrad associate, the Defenders teamed up with their old pal Doctor Strange and their new pal Devil Slayer to fight a bunch of evil demons who were really into Blue Oyster Cult. Our titular non-team emerged victorious from the fiendish fracas, with Hellcat gaining a prehensile magic Dracula cape in the process. Gadzooks! How will Hellcat use her powerful new fashion accessory? After teaming up with old friend Steve and Tanya and new friend Devil Slayer, what ally will aid the Defenders in their next adventure? And, since Lunatic prevailed once against Valkyrie and her enchanted sword Dragonfang, what new weapon will the Defenders seek to wield against him? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so, mostly for party tricks. Spider-Man, I said so in the defensive lineup thing at the beginning, remember? And... The most powerful weapon of all. Modern art. Evildoers beware. Nighthawk, the Hulk, Valkyrie, and Val's new buddy Dollar Bill gather in the living room of the Defenders Long Island headquarters and watch Hellcat do some neat tricks with her new magic cape. The gang seems to be enjoying Patsy's capering because A. Patsy is delightful, and 2. Who doesn't like capering? Especially when it involves an actual cape. Hulk is a bit pensive because Devil Slayer used a cape very similar to Patsy's to teleport him to one of those weirdo dimensions that's filled with random geometrical shapes that was so popular in the 70s. While he was there, Hulk ran afoul of a delightful creature called an Oort Beast that he decided was his enemy, but I decided was adorable and probably named Snorfles. Oh, Snorfles. Kyle brings everyone some mugs of cocoa, and Hulk starts getting into the spirit, asking Patsy to do some more cape tricks. 
Always eager to please, especially if it means continuing to be the center of attention, Patsy complies. The hellacious Hellcat reaches into the folds of her new garment and pulls out... Snorfuls! Hooray! Hulk is decidedly less pleased by Snorfuls' cameo than I was. Patsy quickly stuffs the creature back into its home dimension, but not quickly enough to placate the Hulk. The cantankerous cape-caper critic grabs his feline friend's cape and starts punching the shit out of the offending cloak. Unfortunately, Patsy has formed a psychic bond with the attire in question, and the Hulk's clothes punching gives her a wicked headache. The gang eventually manages to calm the Hulk down before Patsy's brain explodes. Then Dollar Bill decides to rile everyone back up again. The garrulous cinephile brings a newspaper headline to the gang's attention. It turns out that while the defenders were off thwarting Blue Oyster cult quoting demons, Lunatic with a K was up to his old antics. And by antics, I mean murders. Fortunately, Bill has a plan to catch the murderous fuckwad. Or rather, a plan as to how to come up with a plan to catch the fuckwad in question. He's like, hey guys, you know how Lunatic is a stupid arrogant jerk who is prone to irrational outbursts and doesn't make any damn sense? Well, maybe we should get another stupid, arrogant jerk who is prone to irrational outbursts and doesn't make any damn sense to tell us how to catch him. Why is everyone looking at Nighthawk? Oh, because he's a... Yeah, no, I met Professor Turk. Let's go talk to him. Patsy drives Bill and Val into the city to meet with Professor Turk. When they present Bill's proposition, the professor is like, Hmm, I've always been suspiciously interested whenever the name Lunatic is brought up. I'll do it. Oh, and by suspiciously interested, I mean a perfectly normal amount of interested. Uh, by the way, Val, don't you feel like you're probably to blame for Lunatic's violent assaults because he probably only committed them because you rejected his advances on you? Val is like, what? No, that's stupid. Fuck that guy. Good for you, Val. Yeah, fuck that guy. Turk is like, hmm, interesting. But you didn't come here to listen to my harmful regressive MRA bullshit. Although if you did, I have several articles I'd like to share with you. Any takers? No? Oh, okay. Well, since you came to me for a stupid bullshit plan that doesn't make any sense, how's about you build a giant statue of Spider-Man? That would probably piss off Lunatic for some reason. I mean... He usually maims or kills criminals, and Spider-Man is technically a criminal right now, so, you know, maybe I'll... I mean, he'll try to kill the statue or something. Bill, Val, and Patsy all agree that that is exactly the type of stupid bullshit that Lunatic would probably go for. They thank the not-at-all-suspicious professor for his help, and head back to Long Island to fill Hulk and Nighthawk in on the new plan. Meanwhile, in the skies over a sparsely populated section of Russia... Codenamed Jackass mopes around in his flying chair. The self-pitying, super-powered Soviet scientist sulks about the fact that Red Guardian doesn't like him. You know, because he kidnapped, brainwashed, and mind-controlled her into being his girlfriend, then did nuclear experiments on her. As he pouts about how oppressed he is, the nigh-omnipotent, codenamed Shitheel floats into a weird section of countryside that was once the site of some secret testing. The uninhabitable area is filled with crumbling abandoned buildings, giant mushrooms, and skeletons. The brooding dipshit decides to settle down there for a while. Well, there goes the neighborhood. 
Back at the Defender's Long Island headquarters, Patsy and Val are goofing off and the Hulk is enjoying a rare moment of quiet reflection when Kyle summons them to the barn for a meeting. The billionaire-do-well-bird enthusiast informs his colleagues that he's gone ahead and commissioned a statue of Spider-Man and made the announcements to the press that the sculpture will be donated to ESU and will be unveiled on campus the next day. Not only that, but he had the statue built with a hollow base that he figures the Hulk can hide in overnight and then leap out and surprise Lunatic, should the vicious vigilante attack. Great plan, Kyle. Because if there are two words I would use to describe the Hulk, they would be patient and quiet. Hulk thinks Kyle's bullshit plan is bullshit, so he leaps through the roof and bounds away into the sunset. Goodbye, the Hulk! Downtown at the offices of the Daily Bugle, publishing magnate J. Jonah Jameson is yelling at his staff. He just found out that ESU is about to get a statue of Spider-Man, and he is pissed both that Spider-Man is being celebrated and at the fact that the bugle didn't break the story. He orders his long-suffering staff photographer, Peter Parker, to go get pictures of the statue's unveiling. Gee, J. Jonah Jameson sure seems pretty upset about the statue. You don't suppose that he's lunatic, do you? Nah. I mean, sure, he's a dangerous, unstable maniac who enjoys making unprovoked attacks on costumed heroes, but... Um... Shit, maybe J. Jonah Jameson is lunatic. Peter Parker heads off to investigate the statue situation. He has more motivation to get to the bottom of this issue than his boss suspects, because, unbeknownst to J. Jonah Jameson, Peter Parker is secretly Spider-Man. Spider-Man, who does many of the things that a spider can. Apparently one of the things that a spider can do is leap to conclusions, because when Spidey arrives on campus and sees some workers unloading a giant statue, he immediately assumes that they are criminals. Pete shines a spider signal flashlight at the Teamsters and is about to attack them when they point out that no, they aren't in fact criminals pretending to be laborers, they are in fact laborers. This seems to confuse the assumption-prone arachnid adventure, and for a second it seems as though he's maybe going to attack them anyway, when he gets distracted by a movement on a nearby rooftop. He fires his web shooters blindly at whoever's up there. Gosh, given his paranoia and erratic behavior, maybe Spider-Man is lunatic. His actions are certainly leading me to believe that he may be a threat. Or is it a menace? I always forget. It turns out that the person Spidey blindly fired his webs at was none other than Hellcat. Whoops! As they wait for the webs to dissolve, Patsy explains the situation to the trigger-happy web-slinger, who decides to tag along with the defenders on their statue stakeout. As they're waiting for Lunatic to show up, a bunch of students gather around the base of the statue and start talking about how they think statues are dumb and they hate Spider-Man for having a statue. Okay. Spider-Man rushes over, ostensibly to get the kids out of the way so they won't get hurt if Lunatic attacks, but... I bet he wouldn't be too bummed out if maybe one of his critics got a little webbing in their hair. I bet that stuff's a pain in the ass to get out. As Peter approaches the malcontents, Lunatic jumps in from out of nowhere and hits him in the gut with his giant metal Q-tip. Huh. It's almost like he knew there was a trap. Weird. The defenders rush in to lend a hand, but Lunatic grabs a student as a hostage and fends off his foes. The unpredictable asshole then smacks Kyle in the face. 
Val swoops down to rescue the now unconscious affluent avian aficionado, while Lunatic fights Patsy and Spider-Man to a standstill. The good guys seem to be about to gain the upper hand when their unstable adversary flings his whacking stick at Aragorn's head, knocking the Pegasus unconscious. Not cool. Look, I am as big a critic of horses and their terrifyingly large heads as you're likely to find, but beating up an animal is fucked up garbage. Boo! Fortunately, Spidey manages to whip up a giant web hammock to catch the plummeting equine and its riders. But, in the confusion, Lunatic manages to escape yet again. In the process of fleeing, the volatile vigilante dislodges the tarp that had been concealing the Spider-Man statue, and the heroes are all dismayed to see that the commissioned sculpture was an example of abstract art. They all agree that the statue should be torn down immediately. Good call, guys. Innovative artwork that provokes a strong reaction and subverts expectations has no place on a college campus. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? I am feeling better now. I have got a delicious lobster beverage <laughs> and uh, read this fun comic. Nice. Glad to hear it. I'm doing pretty good myself. Glad to have the... Haunted Disco Barn episode out of the way, speaking of lobsters. Relatively happy with how it came out. And I just want to thank you and everyone else who contributed voice work to that. You guys all did a great job. This is Corey, and then Miles Stokes, and Mimi Harris, and Brian Mumford. Uh, And you guys all did a great job. Why, thank you. Yeah, I was very impressed at the the voice talents of uh, everybody you mentioned. And especially you. You oh. did a bunch of crazy voices. And you did that lobster voice without any marbles in your mouth at all, <laughs> as far as I know. But as, as far as I know either. Although, you know, I didn't take an inventory beforehand. Oh, you would have known if you had actual marbles in your mouth. Probably. Anyway, nice work. Came out good. Well, thanks. Sure. I wasn't fishing, but I like what I caught. <laughs> you ready to talk about a comic book? Sure. Corey, what do you think of this comic book? So, for a comic in which I guess so little happens, it was still a lot of fun for me. Good, yeah. I thought it was pretty fun. There were some things about it I definitely wasn't crazy about. But overall, pretty decent read, I felt like. At the beginning of the book, I thought it was the start of a story arc. But at the end of the book, I was like, oh, this was just a fill-in issue. Mm Mm-hmm. Which isn't a terrible way to do it. Like, you don't get the frustration of, oh, this is just a fill-in issue, I can dismiss it. It also didn't really seem to tell a full story, which you sometimes get from a fill-in issue. It was more like, I don't know, like a contained cold open for a later run that's going to happen, it seemed like. Mm -hmm. But overall fun. Nice to see Spider-Man show up. I think this is the first comic book featuring Spider-Man that we've ever covered. I think so, too. Yeah, it was good to see him show up, and his kind of uh, innate goofiness works really well with Hellcat's uh, humorous yeah, approach they, to they, things. they banter well with one another. Mm-hmm. We saw a couple of changes in the art team on this one, or the creative team in general. We see that for this one, it is just David Anthony Kraft is just doing all of the words himself. Ed Hannigan is doing the pencils. And then we have a different inker named Bob Lubbers. Which is a really fun name. Bob Lubbers. It makes it sound to me like maybe it is something a like pirate hairdresser would say if he was trying to get his client to 
try a more adventurous haircut? <laughs> Avast, you bob lubbers! Try an undercut! Because a bob is a haircut and a lubber is like a bland person. who person? loves that haircut. So like, oh, you, you uh, bob lubber would be somebody who just loves bobs. <laughs> so they should try... Try something new! Like a mullet! Avast! A mullet! Try... Avast, me hearty! Avast, you bob lubber! Try a mullet! Try an undercut! Try a third haircut that I cannot think of! Avast! Yeah, I can't think of one either. No, me either. A perm. That's more of a treatment. No, I'm sorry. Then I stand by my earlier statement that I cannot think of a third haircut. Apology accepted. <laughs> Excellent. A <Like> Bob lover. <laughs> I'm a real Bernice. Um, <laughs> I uh, noticed that also, and I'm not, I guess, that excited about the artwork in this. Is It feels more, the finished art feels more of a sketchy Kind of style. Not like sketchy, like a cheap product that you're uncertain of. Right, right. Not suspicious. Right. But more like it is a sketch rather than a polished. Yes. Yeah, I had a similar feel to it. And Bob Lubbers is a very well-regarded artist. But it makes sense that it would result in this style. He is, at this point in his career, best known for working on comic strips rather than comic books. And it does have a more comic strippy, cartoony feel to it, which I don't feel like works particularly well with Ed Hannigan's pencils, which I'm always a little bit iffy on. That being said about Ed Hannigan, he also did the cover, and that's him with uh, Ernie Chan, and it is gorgeous. I love this cover. So I think Ed Hannigan's a guy who, depending on which inker he's working with, you get very, very different results. One of the things that I did really like about the art in this is I think there are some really well-thought-out, imaginative layouts of pages that work really well. I think it's just a, yeah, a matchup that doesn't particularly work well for me for this story. I gotta say, I think Hannigan may have missed his calling, and he should have been a sculptor. Because that Spider-Man statue is bonkers! I really liked it! I hate it, but oh. I, it, I, it made me... I, yeah, maybe I, I don't know. I have really weird feelings about it. But you have feelings about it. It's, it That's elicited, what art does. It elicited strong feelings. There you go. I finally understand art. Thank goodness. Yeah, no problem. That's what I'm here for. Wow. That Then we can cancel that podcast series that we were going to do that was going to be a 12-parter about what is art? Oh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. it's one of my favorite conversations that we can really have. Mm -hmm. No, I loved, I, I thought that was a rad statue. It, it's a modern art sculpture of spider-man i gotta say if anyone ever erects a statue of me anywhere i definitely want it to be surrealist modern art i don't want a representational statue of myself anywhere ever i don't know if that was in any danger of happening anytime <laughs> soon i feel like this is a pretty good show so if there's um, <laughs> any sculptors out there listening who are working on your representational hub sculpture Put Trash it in the it. bin. <laughs> Trash it. We want abstract. It looked to me a little bit like the statue was uh, doing like the 80s ska, like a skanking. Oh, totally. Dance. Yeah, he's doing like the running man. It's a neat looking statue. I don't know if I can accurately describe it. It's a very abstract representation of Spider-Man. The spider logo is cut out of the middle of it. And it's a bending two-dimensional representation kind of rather than uh, fully three-dimensional one, but it's, uh, it's pretty cool looking. 
It's striking. It is. The other change in the creative team we have on this is we have a colorist who is Nelly. Mm-hmm. And I believe that is a pseudonym. A lot of times if an artist sets up like their own studio, then a lot of different artists will be working under a single name. So it really could be any of the Saint Lunatics that's doing the colors. And... <laughs> I was waiting for the... <laughs> that, yeah. For the... Okay. <laughs> no, actually, it is a guy named Nell Yomtov. Uh, Nelson Yamtov. And I got to say, it's another thing in here. I'm not sure what of it is owed to his work and what of it is owed to the color separation process, but it does look kind of sloppy. It's a little rough. Nell Yamtov these days is uh, writing nonfiction children's books about World War One. So, you know, good for him. <laughs> I don't know how to respond to that. There's an audience for such a thing? Seven-year-olds can't get enough of that shit. <laughs> I mean, how many kids have you seen around the playground with t-shirts of Archduke Ferdinand. <laughs> uh, don't know really off the top of my head what he looks like. Um, so he I looks can't... a lot like Big Bird. I see what you're doing and yeah. I don't appreciate Archduke it. Archduke Ferdinand. <laughs> <laughs> you're trying to convince me that all those Big Bird shirts are Archduke Ferdinand and that's not true. Fine. <laughs> see right through your clever ruse. All right. You win this round, Whitney. (laughs) But I'll be back, and in greater numbers. This issue saw the brief but delightful return of our old friend Snorfels. Yes, it did. Yeah, whoops. Uh Uh-oh. I love Hulk, but every now and then, and I know it's his thing, and it's, I shouldn't think it, but I do think, like, Hulk needs to just chill out. Well, especially in this issue, dude is straight longitude. He is all over the map. He starts off, they're all sitting around watching Hellcat put on a display of her new cape, mm-hmm. do tricks with it. Mm-hmm. He initially says, I don't think you should be doing tricks. That cloak is too dangerous. It's got orc beasts and shit in it. Oh, he doesn't I don't like that. what it's capable of. Well, he saw Devil Slayer use it before and it led to an experience he was not thrilled with. Yep. So he is sitting there and he is gruff and he is like, everybody else is saying like, Hey, Hellcat, that's a neat trick. Cool. Well, no, Valkyrie, I think, also is is like, hey, this is some serious shit. You should be careful. I think she says that later. I think she says that after shit goes wrong. Oh, Hulk's. So Hulk was Hulk, the initial. In, on the like, first page, like, Hulk, Hulk is just like, you shouldn't be using that thing. And everyone else is like, yeah, go, Hellcat, go. Mm. Then when she's like, uh, maybe I should stop. You're right. Because then uh, Valkyrie does say, like, you should be careful with that thing. And then Hulk flip-flops and says, No, I want to see more tricks. Mm-hmm. And then she does the other trick that does backfire. Snorfel's head pops out of the cape, says, Ort, Ort. And Hulk flips out and starts attacking her. Then everybody's like, Whoa, Hulk, chill out, chill mm-hmm. out. Everything's mm-hmm. cool. He, hit, he like, punches the cape and it hurts Patsy because she has a mental link with it. And then they all agree that Hellcat should probably put the cape away. Mm-hmm. And then Hulk apologizes to Kyle for hurting Hellcat. See, that's that's a confusion I had, though. I felt like he was just apologizing in general to the room, but directed at Hellcat because it was like, sorry, I got you in trouble. And Kyle's like, oh, oh no, of course you're talking to me. That's quite all right. Hulk, I right. was honestly wondering which was worse, apologizing to Nighthawk for hurting Patsy or accepting that apology. <laughs> Either way, that is just a danger duo right there. And the way I see it, Nighthawk comes off 
looking bad. Yes, he does. And he does later on when Hulk's sitting there enjoying a quiet moment by himself. And Nighthawk, I think it is a miscue with the art team. It looks like he just kicks him in the back when he lands. And it's just like, hey, buddy, how's it going? Yeah, it's like, uh, did you watch 30 Rock? Yes. Now, I forgot the actor's name, but he, he always plays jerks. And the guy that was Liz Lemon's boyfriend that's always like, hey, dummy. Oh, yeah. Like, he totally, hey, oh, dummy. totally. Hulk. Yes. And it just makes you not like him. Well, I mean, he had a head start. And it makes Hulk not like him. And the other thing that... Kyle does to antagonize the Hulk, is make the assumption that the Hulk would enjoy hiding in the base of a statue overnight. What is he basing that on? What in their previous interactions leads him to believe that the Hulk will patiently wait in the base of a statue for somebody to attack? Especially if Birdnose tells him. Yeah. We have it on multiple accounts that when Birdnose tells Hulk to do something, Hulk says no. Hulk says, fuck you, Birdnose. Yeah. Puny Birdnose. Not not doing it. Yeah. You're not the boss of me. No. And that is exactly what happens in this. It leads to the Hulk smashing a hole through the roof and leaping away. Boom! That's got to be pretty satisfying. Can you imagine, like, if you're upset and you leave the room, there's just this deafening, like, boom! (sighs) Be a good exit. Yeah. So here's another way that Kyle fucks up. Hmm. I appreciate a nice cup of cocoa. Cup of cocoa is a great time. Mm-hmm. It is not a substitute for coffee. It is a different thing. You don't bring somebody a tray of cocoa because the coffee machine isn't working. You bring them tea if the coffee machine isn't working. They need caffeine. And he brings in a, a tray of steaming cocos for everybody, which I'm not saying coke. I'm not cocoa bashing here. Mm-hmm. Like me a nice mug of cocoa. But to specifically say you are doing that because you can't get the coffee machine to work, there are better substitutes for that. Yeah. Specifically tea. Or postum. Yeah, or Sanka. Mm-hmm. Or Oleo. Wait. No, it, now I'm just saying things like old people like. Substitute. Yeah, it's a, it's not a grease <laughs> substitute. Isn't it's it? It's a butter substitute. Oh, well. But yeah, it's uh but it's made out of corn oil. Uh, but yeah, it's you know, I was just saying things that old people like. I did like that that called back to Hellcat's uh earlier troubles with the coffee maker that led to was it the Hulk's rule that if you're making coffee for two people yeah, use a French, press. a French press. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that line of continuity that there is the running joke of Kyle having a shitty coffee pot. I will say, though, he is very wealthy. He could get a new coffee maker. Spent all his money on those titanium chairs and horses. (laughs) And murder traps for himself. Oh, yeah, that was stupid. Yeah. God, he's such a dummy. He's a real piece of shit. Speaking of pieces of shit, let's talk about Lunatic for a minute. I don't like him. Nope. Neither do I. Clown makeup? Not cool. Check. Killing 14-year-old shoplifters? Seriously. Dude, that is such a dark moment. And the fact that that article is brought to Valkyrie's attention, which she feels guilty about letting Lunatic get away to begin with. The fact that Dollar Bill brings that to her attention by saying, Glom this and go bananas. Mm Mm-hmm. That is fucked up. Dollar Bill, a child is dead. That is not how you break that news to someone. You know, sometimes being around people that smoke a lot of marijuana, the nuance of situations can be muddied or lost entirely. 
Yeah, I think it is not unreasonable to assume that that is the I case think with he, dollar he bill. is very stone a lot of the time, and so he was just like, oh yeah, this is bonkers. Whoa! Whoa! Far out, man. <laughs> Go bananas. Val, this is going to freak you out. Also, my hands are going to freak you out. Fast and cheese puffs. Val, Val, peep this and go bananas. We could conceivably all be living on a giant's fingernail in a single atom. Mm-hmm. Go bananas, Val. <laughs> She's not having it, though. No, she isn't. I mean, she does kind of go bananas about it, which is a reasonable reaction, but not a reasonable way to phrase that. Mm-mm. One of the things I wanted to bring up about Lunatic is he was a character that Keith Giffen had created apparently in high school. And so he first showed up in one of the early Keith Giffen net shoes. Keith Giffen took that character to DC with him and then separated it into two characters that he created in the 80s, Lobo. No shit. And Ambushbug. What? He took the goofy, madcap, frenetic energy of Lunatic and just kind of put that into Ambushbug and the hyper-violent, vigilante-slash-bounty-hunter parody nature of him and created Lobo out of that. But uh, if you look at really early portrayals of Lobo when he first showed up, like, in the Omega Men, he's wearing kind of what looks like a jumpsuit. His makeup scheme is actually pretty similar to Lunatic. He's totally Lunatic. Dang. Isn't that weird? I never would have made that connection. Nor would I. I Um, also haven't read Lobo or Ambush Bug since I was a kid. Nor have I. And it's one of those, I think, especially with Lobo, it's one where the audience for it has kind of ruined the initial product for me. I feel like there were a lot of people who missed the parody aspects of it and were just like, whoa, that guy's cool. Like Charles Bronson. Yeah, but uh, I did think that was a pretty interesting note about Lunatic. The other thing, which I don't know to what extent this is going to come up in later issues. I suspect that it will. But uh, David Kraft and Ed Hannigan. Ed Hannigan in a little while is going to take over as writer. David Kraft was trying to set up, and he starts doing it in this issue, ties from Lunatic to a previous storyline he was doing in a comic title, uh, Creatures on the Loose, which featured Manwolf. Are you familiar with Manwolf? I am not. I just, whenever I hear character names that start with that, I just go to Man-Thing. Yeah, that's fair. And then you think about penises. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, so, Man-Thing, the, you know. Yeah, no, I know. Thing. Yeah, no, I know. Okay. But Man-Wolf is J. Jonah Jameson's son, hmm. John Jameson, hmm. who was an astronaut, who when he was on the moon, found a chunk of a moon stone, and it got embedded in his chest, and it turns him into a werewolf. Wow. Uh-huh. So he's like an astronaut werewolf, which is pretty cool. Wow. Yeah. But he's the hero of man-wolf. Good, like a good wolf or like chaotic? Sometimes. It depends. Neutral? I think on Earth he is overcome by his bestial nature. And I first encountered this character in a, a Power Records album that I had when I was a kid that was Spider-Man versus the Man-Wolf. I can play it for you sometime. It's pretty fun. Still have it? Somewhere, yeah. Oh, wow. But in that Creatures on the Loose story, Man-Wolf fights a elder god named Arisen Turk, T-Y-R-K. And Kraft is trying to draw out that that character is connected with 
lunatic. And lunatic has one line in this where he says, I used to be a god, you know. And it's tough to pick that out from all of the other just like weird nonsense banter that he's saying. Hmm. But that is, I think, the first allusion that he is drawn to that. And normally I wouldn't bring it up, but I want to make sure that we, we get to it because I don't know to what extent it does get realized later on. But you'll also notice the name Arizon Turk. Harrison. That stupid drama teacher. Yeah, which it had already been pretty seriously hinted at was lunatic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I feel like that gets reinforced in this issue as well. Mm -hmm. So there's some weird heady shit going on with lunatic. And also, he's just a jerk. I do not care for him. No. Although there was one moment where I almost slightly identified with him in one regard. Hmm. When he first shows up and kicks Spider-Man in the head. He says, giving you a kick to the head. And then he follows that up by quoting Randy Newman lyrics from the song Short People. And I was like, is he listening to the Dr. Demento show? <laughs> I had to look it up. And the song Boot to the Head didn't come out until 87. So it wasn't okay. referencing that, but I really thought that it was. We both loved that novelty song. Uh, I thought we that kid. was the height of comedic martial arts genius at that time. I did too. In addition to the general problems with Professor Turk, he does something that really makes him an irredeemable character regardless of whether he is the murderous vigilante lunatic in that he really heavily implies that Valkyrie is to blame for lunatic's rampage because she rejected him. And that is so fucked up. And it's kind of not the only time that happens in this book. Because we also see the return of Codename Fuckwit, who is blaming his life events and his situation on Red Guardian rejecting him. Yeah. I was over that story Yeah, halfway through it initially. This idea of, oh, I'm going to decide that this person's going to be my partner and force them to be, and then uh, being surprised when it doesn't work out. Yeah, and being petulant about somebody breaking your hypnotic control over them and feeling rejected and mopey and like, oh, I could have been happy. It's all my, it's all her fault that things aren't working. And Professor Turk kind of does the same thing or implies that the same thing happened when he, he says, Valkyrie, don't you feel responsible for lunatic beating up Ledge? Fuck that. And fuck both of those guys. Well, and also her response is like, I should have fucking killed him when yeah. I had the chance. Yeah. How's that? So good good for her. Yeah. I'm glad that she hasn't internalized that bullshit. And I hope that Red Guardian hasn't either. Yeah, I was not stoked to see Codename Fuckface return. Floating around in his fancy space toilet. I did find myself curious as to what this super apocalyptic thing he's referencing is as he floats off into that uh, atomic no-man's zone in, in Russia. I don't think it's citing something actual right there. I think that is an invention for the comic book that Russia did some nuclear tests that went awry. Uh, the name of it, I thought it was like the name of the town that was posted on the thing. It's just a sign that says danger restricted zone so i think and then when you go in there there's like giant mushrooms and shit and it's really really trippy in there i think it is planting the seeds of a storyline that is based around the idea that russia was testing secret weapons there and made a contaminated zone 
my imagination ran away with me a little bit in that scene because there are those giant like kind of smurfy uh -huh. mushrooms but then there's also a, a skeleton that's sort of impaled on this weird structure yeah um that's either like a dead tree or something but i was like oh man did they make like crazy radioactive what are the mushroom roots called mycelium oh and and because that's like the biggest organism nuclear powered hallucinogens on the planet my god and it goes underground and nobody could... nobody tell mr jupiter about those things can you imagine the balloons he'd create oh scary very scary boy the fears you'd confront no thank you yeah it, it is weird there's that juxtaposition because there are these like really cartoonish black light poster of the hookah smoking caterpillar style mushrooms juxtaposed with a fairly realistic skeleton yeah, I feel like if we just say skeleton, then it like leaves the possibility open that it's like a fun Halloween skeleton that might be playing its own ribs like a xylophone. And it's not that kind of skeleton. No, it's a creepy it's kind. It's a creepy kind of skeleton. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, it makes for a really, really distinctive image. But it's totally ruined by Fuckface floating along in a space toilet just being like, Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. Guess I'll eat some worms. Yeah, that's what I'll do. You go eat your fucking worms, Fuckface. Boo! So as much as I generally enjoyed Spider-Man's presence in this book, his portrayal here did raise a few questions for me. The main one being, why do you think he carries around his own Spidey signal signaling device? It seems like a weird choice. Yeah. He's got a flashlight that sends a spider signal onto things that's kind of like the bat signal except for it's a like image of his face with webs on it. Do you think he just does that so he can pretend he was invited places? <laughs> like, you go outside a party, you flash that in the air, he's like, oh, looks like uh, I saw the spider signal. Figured it was cool if I just came in, right? Somebody wanted to see me here. Mm -hmm. That's the only explanation. I can't think of another one. It's a really weird choice. He, I mean, he admits that he has it on him. He says it must be low on batteries. I don't know why he shines it on those truckers who are working for richmond industries i guess it's maybe it's just like a heads up or a spidey come in like, <laughs> yeah thing. maybe that was one of the questions that his presence started the other one is tangentially related uh which is how shitty a newspaper is the daily bugle i mean we know it's kind of a gossip rag basically and it is heavily influenced by j jonah jameson's editorial mandates but the fact that when he senses there is a big story that he wants the scoop on, he sends a solo photographer with no reporter, that's fucked up. Is he just going to get the pictures and then have somebody sitting in the office make up a story around the pictures? That is some terrible journalism. Well, when you put it that way, sure. Like, I don't know another way to put it. How, how else do you get a story with a photographer but no reporter? There's um, never an implication that he's going to let Peter write up a story. Yeah, I was just going to say, that's the only way around it, is if Peter is uh, moonlighting as a writer. Yeah, maybe he's got a pseudonym or something. Either way, poor journalistic practice. I'm against it. Okay, that's fair. It's a shame, because I do like J. Jonah Jameson. Kind of. I mean, it's Spider-Man. He's a threat? Is he a menace? What's going on with that guy? I, I didn't really like his thing in this one, though, of... Like, okay, we missed the scoop on that one, but, like, here's this gnarly murder thing. Now that's news, which is, yes, okay, yeah. fine. 
it is, I guess. But I think there is probably a certain level of callousness you get that goes along with being in the news media. But you're right, it is tough to jibe that with a decent human being. Right, yeah, just like, oh, tragedy sells, yes, but also yeah, but, gross. But what are you, fucking dollar bill? A child is dead. Oh, bananas! Do, do, do you think J. Jonah Jameson is really high? I mean, maybe that's a blunt, not a cigar. That he's always smoking. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't either. It, it doesn't seem to fit with the rest of his personality. It's also just not working. He's <laughs> no. way too st- high-strung. Imagine how high-strung he would be without those things. Oh, oy, oy, oy. <laughs> But honestly, you'd be stressed out, too, if you were getting scooped by the fucking post. Yeah, it doesn't sound good. No, man. New York Post bad newspaper man oh yeah oh yeah they're the ones that do all the uh pun headlines well they'll just scoop you and not look back yeah mm. mm-hmm. maybe the bugle should concentrate more on some pun headlines and then they could really fight fire with fire with the uh new york post i think i've told you my favorite new york post headline i ever saw mm. it was jason kidd had been arrested for drunk driving it was soon after he had been named head coach of the new york knicks and the headline just said slam drunk Oh, pretty good. <laughs> Especially because Jason Kidd was not known for his dunking ability. You don't want to compete with that level of <laughs> sophistication sophisticated punnery. No, not if you're J. Jonah Jameson. Mm-mm. Stick to threat or menace editorials. Hit that blunt. <laughs> I want photos of Spider-Man and flaming Hot Cheetos on my desk by 8 o'clock. There's a weird bit where when they are battling Lunatic, Kyle gets knocked out when Lunatic punches out a horse. I guess he doesn't punch him out, but he knocks Aragorn unconscious with his stick mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And Aragorn, Valkyrie, and Nighthawk start plumbing to the ground. Valkyrie makes a note, oh, I can't turn on Nighthawk's jetpack in time. Hadn't we just established like one or two issues ago that his jetpack now has a safety device that kicks in if he goes unconscious. I think you're right. It does. But maybe because he was actually already unconscious when Valkyrie picked him up on Aragorn. Because he got hit in the face by Lunatic. And then Valkyrie like picked him up and rescued him. And then Lunatic threw his Oh. His that would make sense. And knocked out the horse. Yeah. Not yeah, cool. That's a fucked up thing to do. Yeah. Don't knock a horse out. No. Yeah, I had thought that what was just happening was, like, they just needed to raise the stakes of the situation in order to make it reasonable that Spider-Man would make the hammock. And I was like, you really don't need to do that. I mean, Aragorn's going to be hurt really badly and possibly die if he crashes to the Earth. So you still need to make that giant hammock. I thought they were kind of devaluing Aragorn with that. But if Kyle is already unconscious and he would get hurt, too, that does kind of make sense. I'd forgotten he had already been... (laughs) Yeah, he got uh, bocked in the face. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that later. This is the worst superhero. <laughs> He's so bad at his job. <laughs> the dude was pretty much passed out on the ground, and he still bocked him unconscious. <laughs> Stupid Kyle. Jeez. Speaking of people that uh, did a pretty good job, as opposed to Kyle, Hellcat, good banter throughout. Also, I really like the way that she is flaunting her Avengers equivalent of diplomatic immunity. Of the driver's license? Thing? Yeah, that yeah. she doesn't have a driver's license. She's zipping around town. Dollar Bill is congratulating her on what a good job she did cutting off a bus. Yeah. Yeah. And she's such a likable character that 
her rude driving style doesn't ruffle my feathers. Nah, she's probably just from Massachusetts. <laughs> or Rhode Island. Yeah, it really is. Rhode Island, I think, is worse it's than the Massachusetts. Worst. Yeah, it's the That is the only place I've been passed by somebody driving on my right side on the shoulder of the road to pass yeah. me. It, yeah. The other lane was completely clear on the left, <laughs> also. Well, that, that's they wanted to send you a message. Yeah, it was really <laughs> jarring. Yeah. On the other hand, it is also the only place in the country where you can consistently get coffee milk. Like chocolate milk, but coffee flavored. It's really good. I never had that there. It's good. Mm. Uh, they also, they call milkshakes cabinets. Cabinets? Uh-huh. Instead of fraps, as we call them in the rest of New England. Right. Yeah. So, you know. Rhode Island's got some shit going for itself, too, I'm just saying. Coffee, milk, and cabinets. Uh Uh-huh. And terrible driving. Mm. There was also another panel where, okay, there's a really nicely laid out panel where they're talking to the piece of shit Professor Turk, and around him is a montage of lunatic doing his garbage where he beats up, maims, or kills people who are committing minor crimes. In that, we see a bunch of signs that are like law enforcement signs that people have apparently been violating and why he is hitting them. Mm -hmm. They are, keep off the grass, curb your dog, fine for littering, no smoking, no parking. These are all pretty standard. The two that really amused me are bathing prohibited. Mm -hmm. What kind of liminal spaces are there where people are bathing where they should not be bathing? Like public fountains? Something like that? I just read that as a made-up. Like, they, like um, Kraft just... Yeah, Kraft ran out of things to... And was just like, we need another. Mm-hmm. The other one that uh, caught my eye was the no ball play. And I think it's probably supposed to be no ball playing. Mm-hmm. I like the idea that it's no ball players. <laughs> like that there are just sections of town where they're just like, no ball players allowed. It strikes me as like the kind of like forced underdogness of a team you would get in like a sports movie. And I, I thought that would uh that would be kind of a fun premise. It's just like everybody in town hates ball players. They're not allowed in buildings. Okay. Maybe they were the ones who were bathing where they weren't supposed to. Mm. You ready to get on to the minutia? Yeah. Alright. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Corey. Yep. What was your favorite sound effect? Bark! (laughs) I had the same one because, first of all, it is a great sound effect. It is the noise that is made when Kyle is hit in the face with Lunatic's metal pole. And I like the idea that it's like the very universe is mocking Kyle as he gets hit in the face. It makes a bird noise when he gets hit in the face with a pole. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> he's bird nose. Mm-hmm. Bird noise for bird nose. Bok! Bok. Then we are in accord. Corian, what is rapidly becoming our most popular segment? I have a question I must put to you. Okay. Patsy does a great job doing her little cape twirling act. Mm-hmm. Dollar Bill says, what a great act. I could put this on Broadway. So, Corey, behold or be gone, attending Patsy's Broadway show of her doing cape tricks with the shadow cloak. So I, as you know, am not a fan of musicals. Right. 
Which I feel like there's a lot of that on Broadway. There are. There are other kinds of plays on Broadway. But a lot of musicals. Yes. That said, risks of Ort Beasts or whatever else coming out of that thing, I'm there. Yeah? Yeah. I feel like uh, she's a funny person. She is. And she's got a magical cape. Yep. And how often am I going to get to see a funny person with a magical cape do stuff? I am of two minds on this. I agree. I love Patsy. I would like to see her do some tricks. I don't know if that kind of act can sustain a full theatrical performance. Also, I'm probably just not going to go see a Broadway show because them shits are expensive. So if we I'm... didn't say I had to pay for it. Well, how else are you going to get? Yeah, okay. We could second act it. You familiar with that? I don't know what that means. It's a practice that was pretty common in on Broadway specifically, where you just sneak in during intermission and catch uh, the show from the second act on. If you do that, I'm a little bit more inclined to go. I want to see Patsy. I want to see that orc beast if he pops up. Love me some snorfles. As much as I love Patsy, as fond as she is of banter, I'm worried that she would break the fourth wall. And that is like a real big no-go for me. As much as I love Patsy, I do not want to interact with the show. And I feel like she might pull some kind of Cirque du Soleil shit where she's like, Hey, and how about you, sir, in the front row? And that is terrifying to me. Yeah. I once, Tina and I were in Mexico and there was a big performance thing with a magician guy. Oh no, you didn't get it. And she was like, oh, let's stop and watch this. And I was like, nope. And I power walked away and she (laughs) was like, why are you doing that? And I'm like, he might make us do things. (laughs) Yep. I am of the same mind. I am on the record as saying the fourth wall is a load bearing wall. We need that. We live in a society. (laughs) There's rules for a reason, damn it. Yes. And so, as difficult as it is for me to say, because I love Patsy, and I think it's probably, for the most part, a good act, I am too nervous that she would pull some Cirque du Soleil shit and try to incorporate the audience into her act. I'm gonna give it a be gone. You sticking with Behold? <sighs> Do I have to sit in the front? <laughs> I don't have... I can sit wherever I want. I second acted. I'm being sneaky. Okay. Then yeah. you're sticking with be go- Behold? Yeah. Okay, then that is one... Behold! And one be gone for Patsy's Broadway show. Yeah, I mean, if she picks me, I'm just going to run away knocking chairs down behind me like I usually do. But she's very agile. She would be able to leap over those chairs. Well. I'm just saying. That's pretty scary, but also kind of cool because Hellcat's pretty cool. Yeah, she is pretty cool. Corey, what was your pie not made out of steel? What words did you like best in this issue, much like you would like a pie, were it not made out of steel? So, I'm not a fan of lunatic as a person. No. But he does say something that I thought was a good pie not made out of steel, which is a hero ain't nothing but a sandwich. Pretty good. I thought that was pretty good. It is. I feel like that's a quote. It's still a good bad guy bit of dialogue. It is a good bad guy bit of dialogue. I'll, I'll, I'll allow it. I decided to go with something that Spider-Man says to Lunatic. I also enjoyed a lot of Patsy's banter, but I think my favorite is when Lunatic is throwing his metal pole at Aragorn and Spider-Man ducks out of the way of getting hit by it because he thinks that Lunatic is trying to hit him. He says, nice try, pancake puss, but you really telegraphed that one. Mm. And then he throws the stick and it hits Aragorn in the face. And he says, you missed the point, pinhead. What I like about what Spider-Man said, two things. First of all, you really telegraphed that one. I always really appreciate that as a phrase. It comes up in pro wrestling a lot when somebody 
shows their hand that they're about to try a certain move before they do it. I feel like it's a really evocative metaphor. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, obviously, Pancake Puss. I believe he is referring to the fact that Lunatic is wearing a lot of pancake makeup. Mm -hmm. But I want there to be a chain of pancake restaurants that has a mascot that is Pancake Puss. A lovable cat who eats pancakes and maybe is made of pancakes. Ugh. You don't have to eat him. Was he just like choose choose his own paws off? No. You're making it weird, Corey. Yeah, I'm I just making, wanted to have a it lovable weird. cat who is made of pancakes and likes pancakes to eat. Yes. Okay. Fine. Okay, maybe okay, he's not made of pancakes. Write that maybe he's plans. maybe he's just a cat who likes pancakes. I don't know if cats are allowed to eat pancakes. Are they? I think they're pretty strict carnivores. Hmm. So well, then it's a magical, fantastical cat. That's why he has to be made out of pancakes. Because cats are made out of meat, and they eat meat. How come that doesn't weird you out, Corey? Aha, you're a hypocrite. No, I'm just confused. <laughs> Understandably so. Well, I guess you will be dining at Pancake Puss Pancake Palace. Not anytime soon. Well, you're going to be missing out. Those are some good pancakes. Good luck with that business plan. Thank you. Every issue of a Defender's comic book has a best defender and a worst offender. In this issue, who is the best defender and who was the worst offender? Can we pick Spidey because he's we can. on the scene? Okay, yes. I'm gonna. he was my first choice. For best defender? For best defender because he kind of saved the day. He did. He, he saved Aragorn, certainly, from getting smushed on the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. And Val from being inconvenienced from fall, by falling from great height. And possibly Kyle from dying. Yeah. And, you know, he was his likable spidey self. He was. So. Yeah. I, uh, for me, it came down to him or Patsy. Yep. She um, was my runner-up. Yeah. I She was a lot of fun. I think I'm giving the slight nod to Patsy on this one. Just because I loved her uh, flaunting of diplomatic immunity. Or Avengers version of diplomatic immunity. And she also did a very good job. Uh, and I really enjoyed the interplay between her and Spider-Man. I like how she flirted with him because she decided that under his mask he's probably cute. I also like the, the gender switcheroo thing she did where this being set in the 70s. Um, she used the phrase, all those loose guys, <laughs> about why she was excited to go to the college campus. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty nice. So I, I went with Patsy, but I agree that Spider-Man also did a very good job in this. Those were my two choices for the best. I also had two choices for the worst offender. And for me, that came down to the Hulk and Kyle. It's kind of close. We talked about a lot of the reasons why they both did a bad job in this issue. I, I honestly do think that Kyle probably did a worse job, but I'm going to give it to the Hulk just for variety's sake. I think I mentioned before, it kind of came down to, is it worse that the Hulk apologized to the wrong person or that Kyle accepted that apology. They are both treating Patsy as though she is not an autonomous person. And that's that's a real problem. So the answer is it's Kyle because Hulk apologized to Patsy. I don't think he did. In my reading of it. We can look at that panel. He clearly has his arm around Kyle and is talking to Kyle. I choose to that. think that he's he addressing was, the room. He's addressing Patsy saying, sorry, if I got you in trouble, Hellcat. And then Kyle saying, oh, that's OK. I agree that Kyle did a bad job. If you read it that way, it really does look 
he is turning and looking at Kyle as he is saying it. Okay, fine. But I read it the other way because <laughs> I chose to. Okay. And uh, that's why Kyle got my vote. I did have Hulk as a runner-up. However, I like to think that the reason Hulk did such a bad job is because at the very beginning, Kyle came up and did the, hey, dummy, yeah, thing to him. That's yeah. how he started off the whole affair. And we all know that's not how you talk to the Hulk. No. Not if you want things to go well. That That's a good point. Thank you. Yeah, don't neg the Hulk. Don't do it. Don't neg anybody, actually. No, that's no. Just yeah, stupid and gross. stupid and gross. And I, I bet you anything Kyle was heavy into, like, pick-up artist culture. He's had those books, probably. Yeah, he has feathers in his hat. I don't know what I think that that's means. a thing. Like, you're that's supposed a, to, yeah. The feather is, like, a lady that you pick up, you put a feather in? No, no, it's like a... It's called peacocking. It's another one of the pickup artist tricks. You're supposed to make yourself look colorful and unusual. So, like, you put, like, a feather in your hat, and then you do negs, and then, like, I don't know, probably uh, magic tricks. <laughs> yeah. It's all a with rich everything? tapestry of barfiness. Oh, oh no. Be gone! <laughs> yeah, agreed. Be gone! In addition to a best defender and a worst defender, every issue of a defender's comic book also has a sucka, a character who, to paraphrase the fat boys from Crush Groove, has to act in a manner contrary to their previously established characterization or motivation in a way that furthers the plot. They just gotta be a sucka. In this issue, who was your sucka? In this issue, my sucka was the Hulk. Ditto. Yeah. So... I mean, I guess in a lot of ways he behaved in character. Sure, he's a irascible fellow in mm-hmm. the best of times. The rapid vacillation in the opening pages was what it came down to for me, of him going back and forth between wanting Patsy to do the tricks with her cape, not wanting to do any tricks with her cape, and then hitting her and apologizing to Kyle for it. It, it all just seemed out of character to me. Yeah, that and and a lot of times what we see with the Hulk is the team kind of pisses him off so he does what they want. Mm -hmm. And in this, he, you know, and I guess I applaud him for it, said, fuck this, I'm out. Right. But he, you know, he didn't come back and, you know, help the team out. That's true. That's true. He stuck to his guns, which is a very un-Hulk-like thing to do. Mm -hmm. He's, at the beginning, mercurial, as we expect him to be, but... And he just really stuck with it. And he recognized what a stupid plan they were doing before he left, too. This trap plan is stupid. Hulk won't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Hulk should smash stupid statue, but then friends would be mad, so Hulk will just leave. I think that type of restraint is also fairly uncharacteristic Un-Hulk-y. for him. Yeah, I agree. Okay, two Hulks. Sorry, Hulk. You're being a real sucker. Man, so he's your sucker and your worst. Yes. Big day for him. That must be hard for you. It is. Mm. It is. I'll get through it, though. Okay. Sartorially speaking, which element of fashion in this issue did you feel was most worthy of note? Yeah, I got a few choices. Okay. On page five, uh, when they go talk to Professor Turd. Ooh, I like that. Not as... Professor oh, Turd? Yeah. No, okay. I like that. That's um, nice. Yeah, Val wears... That's his name now. Good. A green dress. Val does wear a nice green dress. Well, it's very smart. Mm-hmm. Like, very... I don't know. It just looks... Yeah, it's a very professional. It is. It's a, it's a nice look for her. Mm-hmm. It's a good look. Uh, and I believe it is the same panel. Uh, Dollar Bill is wearing a nice leather fringe vest, mm-hmm. which uh, he's wearing, I believe, with a green turtleneck. And that is a nice look for him. I like me a fringe leather, a leather fringe vest or waistcoat for our listeners across the pond. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. true. 
My mom had one of those when I was a kid. Really? Did you ever borrow it? Oh yeah, all the time. And because I was a little kid, it came down to my like my calf. Oh nice. Yeah, I wore it's a it good uh, luck. as a I fancied it a cowboy's like duster. <laughs> nice. But it was very fringy. Cool. We had very different fashion senses as children. I really liked clip-on ties mm. when I was a little kid. I used to wear them with everything, like with t-shirts and mm -hmm. stuff. I think we would have complimented one another. Yeah, a real uh, odd couple. Yeah. Speaking of Dollar Bill, he also had one of my favorite other outfits on page 27. It's like a jumpsuit. Hmm. Oh, totally. It's like somebody gave him a shield uniform. It's like a Air Force... Uh, um... Like the guy that fixes the planes, maybe? What yeah, your mechanic jumpsuit? Yeah, yeah, mechanic jumpsuit. Yeah, but he's wearing it with like an open collar that's kind of popped a little bit. Yeah, that's a nice look for him. Yeah. It really is like, it, it has a very like dollar bill agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. look to it. Mm -hmm. It's like an action jumpsuit. Ready to go bananas, guys. Yeah. It's <laughs> uh -huh. probably what he sounds like. Yeah, probably. Corey, what was your favorite panel? I had a toss-up between the opening panel on page one, where Patsy is on, I think, the coffee table doing a cool dance with the magic cape. Yeah, although if you ask Kyle, it's probably the cocoa table. Fucking Kyle. That's just why he's the worst. I can't believe you didn't vote for him. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a good panel. People are having a good time. It is. That's a really fun one. I, I had a couple to choose from. As I said, I had overall had some issues with the artwork, but on page three... There are a couple of close-ups, one of the Hulk and one of Patsy, and I think those are really well done, and they're both inset into a larger panel of the Hulk attacking Patsy's cape, and I think it's really well done. I also really liked the montage panel that we talked about with all of the street signs of Lunatic doing his various garbage, assaulting people for no real reason, with the Professor Turd scheming scene in the center of that. But I think my favorite is actually a pretty simple panel. When Spider-Man first shows up on campus, there's just a really nicely drawn truck. It's the Mack truck that has delivered the modern art sculpture. And it's just a really nicely drawn truck. Good good job, Handigan and Bob Lubbers. Great truck. Nice job, guys. It is a nice truck. And also, it is centered in the scene by it is breaking the panel lines and is kind of in the center of the entire page with the rest of the page built around it. It's nicely done, and as I said, I have issues with a lot of Hannigan's artwork, but his layouts are really imaginative, and that's a good example of that. Yeah, it's better than the panel of uh, on the following page of Spider-Man flipping around a building with uh, one giant butt cheek and a missing leg. Yeah, I, I think that is his leg. You can see his foot right there. It's extended back. Oh. But it does look, yeah, you're you're right. At first glance, it really does look like he's doing that. I also actually really liked the reveal of the modern art sculpture. That was up there with my favorite panels. Yeah, my, my runner-up was the one on the bottom of that page, on page 29, where Hellcat and Spidey are looking through, or are seen looking through from the front, the Spider-Man cut out on the uh, skanking statue. Yeah, that's really well done. Nicely designed. Mm. And those are the best panels this issue had to offer. Indeed. Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. In this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? I think it's come up in the past, but it rings true again. And that's that, let's just say, life is short and actions speak louder than words. Mm. And what causes me to say that is on page two, where Hulk says to everybody, Enough talk! 
Time to drink. Oh, man. That right there is a pretty good Hulk's rule. It's, top, yeah, time I just to felt drink. like I needed to yeah, make it no. more flowery. No, I think that's a that's a very good Hulk's rule. Well played, Corey. And yeah. well played the Hulk. I had the Hulk's rule being blame and apologies must be distributed appropriately or not at all. I, I think he learned that from... Uh, we, we talked about distributing apologies in this and also... I feel like that applies to blame as well in this issue uh, with the way that both Professor Turk and, I'm sorry, Professor Turd. There we go. And uh, codenamed Shitface um, <laughs> were both trying to blame the fact that they were rejected by women for their own actions rather than taking accountability for them. So I think between that and uh, Hulk inexplicably apologizing to Nighthawk for hitting Patsy rather than apologizing to Patsy for hurting her. I think from that we get that, uh, yeah, blame and apologies must be distributed appropriately or not at all. And also, enough talk, time to drink. Life lessons. These life lessons brought to you by Hellcat Irish Whiskey. Whoo! It warms the cockles of your heart. Yes, sir. Tastier than a pancake post-breakfast. Said no one ever. <laughs> oh, you don't think anything's tastier than that? I'll quote you on that. Corey Whitney raves. No one's ever said anything was tastier than a pancake puss breakfast. With a question mark? <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, Corey, I think it's time for us to write some wongs. Fair enough. In the year of our Lord, 1978, and the month of our Lord, July, what wongs needed writing? So, one of Wong's many duties... Did you laugh because I said duties? Yes. One of Wong's many responsibilities, <laughs> the sanctum sanctimonious, as we know, is to prepare meals. And he has been working on this chicken recipe. Ooh, inspired by his adventures with Steve Gutenberg? Yep, of course. Goes without saying. And it is really fucking good. He has gotten this thing executed to a T. So that's one thing that was going on. But also another thing that was going on was uh, he had some friends that were actually St. Bernard breeders. Oh. The uh, Riots, I think their uh, family name was. They fell on some hard times and uh, had to basically find homes for the latest crop of pups that mm -hmm. they had that were, you know, destined to become fancy St. Bernards, as these professional breeders do. They send them to shows and competitions and whatnot. And uh, anyway, uh, one of them needed to be fostered before it could find its forever home and so Wong was like yeah sure i can do this and that dog's name was brandy bear oh that's a fun name yeah cute little saint bernard fucking yeah. brandy bear i bet its paws were huge its paws were so huge oh, and so floppy floppy and just oh adorables but so that thing loved wong's chicken oh well who wouldn't who wouldn't but this dog was extremely food motivated and so wong began uh training the pop to do all kinds of Cool shit. And uh, it turned out that the, this dog's aptitude was... Uh, St. Bernard's a pretty big breed dogs, strong dogs. Mm -hmm. And um, if you would just put a piece of that magic chicken somewhere, the dog would do anything to get to it. A real Scooby Snack situation. A real Scooby Snack situation. And so, to keep the dog busy, Wong uh, began entering him into to various competitions. Largely, like, pushing and pulling kind of strength. Sort of like a... Strong man, strong person competitions, but strong dog, strong dog competitions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Brandy Bear was good at this shit. The result was that uh, by the time he was full grown on uh, July twenty first, 
he became the strongest dog in the world. Whoa! Because Wong had put a piece of his magic chicken in the front seat of a truck that weighed about 6,500 pounds. Oh. And Brandy Bear was able to push that truck over four meters trying to get to that piece of magic chicken. Well done, Wong. And well done, Brandy Bear. Congratulations to you both. Thank you. <laughs> he just nighthawked that. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Ouch. <laughs> hey. <laughs> I'm that... taking credit for Wong or Brandy Bear. Thank you very much. Okay, I'm glad to hear that. And that was one thing that Wong was up to. Another thing that Wong was up to was uh, being politically active. Wong was, of course, a big supporter of the Equal Rights Amendment. And so on July 9th, he joined a huge march in Washington. Over 100,000 people were advocating for the passage of an Equal Rights Amendment. And he marched and it was really important to him. Um, sadly, it did not pass in that or any year, there still hasn't been an Equal Rights Amendment. But he was talking to, when he got back from Washington, he was all jazzed up. And so he started talking to Steve about the importance of the ERA. As usual, Steve was only half listening. So Steve came away from that thinking like, hmm, yes, Wong seems awfully interested in baseball statistics. Apparently earned run average is very important to Wong. I'd better talk to my friends on the Yankees. Because Steve is a Yankees fan. <laughs> yeah, agreed. So he really got into Billy Martin, the manager of the Yankees' head. <laughs> and he was just like, yes, Wong was telling me earned run average is very important. Possibly the most important issue facing our country at this time. So... I think you should really be aware. I know you guys are going to be playing the Kansas City Royals uh, in this upcoming uh, game on July 17th. So uh, look out for Paul Splitteroff. He's got an ERA of 3.81. And Billy Martin doesn't really know what to make of this, but he's like, well, if, uh, if, if Steve thinks that's important, then okay, that's good enough for me. Reggie Jackson, I want you to bunt against this guy. Reggie Jackson no, did not want to bunt. Call. Reggie Jackson's a home run hitter. So he ended up getting into a fight with Billy Martin in the dugout, uh, which led to eventually Billy Martin getting fired because Steve didn't pay attention and thought that when Wong was advocating for the importance of the Equal Rights Amendment, he meant the earned run average. And that is what Wong was doing with his Wong doings in July of 1978. Dang. Yeah, Steve really should listen more. He should. And he should also, I mean, I understand he lives in New York, but there's a team called the Mets that he could root for, and that would be just fine. Mm -hmm. There's no excuse for being a Yankees fan. Careful. No, I will not be careful. <laughs> I don't like him either. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us. This and, has uh, been Baseball Fox <laughs> with Hub and Court. Yep. Sports experts. Do you have baseball thoughts? Give us a Good nice for review. you. Yeah. That's what to do with those baseball thoughts. If you want to tell us your your thoughts on professional baseball teams, leave us a five-star review and do that in the text there. Five thumbs <laughs> up. Oh, that. Um, yeah. Tighten up the defense. Five stars. They never should have lowered the pitching mound. Um. <laughs> <laughs> and don't tell Reggie to bunt. For God's sake. He's the straw that stirs the drink. It's a foolish thing to do. It's a foolhardy thing to do. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a real treat. I'd also like to thank everyone once again for I got a lot of really nice positive feedback about the Tales from the Haunted Disco Barn episode that we just put out. 
it's a lot of extra work to do those, but uh, I really appreciate you guys being saying nice things about it. So thanks, and thank you for doing a wonderful job being the voice of Stephen King. Corey got into character by uh, watching that scene from Maximum Overdrive like 50 times. I watched an hour of Stephen King interviews, and then I realized that um, impressions aren't my strongest suit, so no. I, I just read the words. Yeah, well, still, it came through, I think. Oh, thank you. I, I mean, also, I don't know if you could tell in his performance, I think it came through, but Corey spent hours getting called an asshole by ATM. Martha, <laughs> this machine's calling me an asshole! <laughs> Just to prepare for the role. So I hope you guys appreciate the work that went into that. There's a lot of ATM fees, you guys. <laughs> if you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. I love hearing from you guys, and uh, I've gotten some uh, really nice messages lately, and thank you for those. If you would like to contact us and other parts of the internet, goodness, we are busy little bees all up in the internet's honeycomb. Um, we are in Facebook and Tumblr and LinkedIn. Sure. And, uh, yeah, we got a Grinder account. Why wouldn't we? I don't know how that works. It was set up by a friend of the show, Devin Tuhey. And we are on, uh, what else? Uh, Lisa runs an Instagram page for the show. That's right. If you would like to donate to the show monetarily, you can do so at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a bunch of bonus material. For October, I made a bunch of little videos of me doing reviews of classic spook em up comic books. It was a lot of fun, so you can check those out. I do weekly video reviews for our $5 a month and up donors, um, and I usually do one or two also that are up there for the rest of our donors. And Lisa and I host a monthly show called What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That's our Howard the Duck podcast that is also available for our Patreon donors. So uh, you'll get some bang for your bucks. And mostly, though, it is uh, just a really nice way of letting us know that you like and enjoy the show and want to support it and ensure that it continues to keep being a show. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to keep doing this for you guys. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And that's like all I got, right? I don't got to say anything else to it. That's all you got, man. Yeah. You've I, given it your all. I try. I, I, I had this much, and then I gave it, and that's all. Now you've got nothing. Now I've got nothing, but that's okay. I don't need it. No, it's good. It's healthy. I got what I need here on the inside. Mm -hmm. I'm tapping my heart. Uh-huh. And, and here in my brain, mm -hmm. and both of those places are filled with love for you, our listeners. Heart and brain. Yep. Working together. Try to squunch them together. Can't do Don't it. Don't do it. No, I got a neck in the there middle. There should Probably be. some other things. Yeah. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> nope. I don't know what they're called, but there's some other bits between my heart and my brain. So thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, did I Kyle again? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fuck it. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye. I'm not Kyle. No, of course not Kyle. Have I talked to you about how you can never tell whether the Beach Boys are saying if everybody had a notion across the USA or if everybody had an 
ocean across the USA, when they're sung, they are virtually identical, and either one almost makes sense, but doesn't quite make sense. It's, um, it's the magic of the Beach Boys. Mm-hmm. That and their harmonies. Oh, yeah. Good harmonizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a lobster lover's beer. Oh. Which oh. could mean it's intended to flavor... It doesn't taste like lobsters. If memory serves, it tastes like malt liquor, kind of. It's a very unbalanced beer that is way heavy on the malt mm. side. Yeah. Maybe you're supposed to dip the beer in melted butter. You... <laughs> oh, that's a, like a Zen cola. <laughs> hey, how do you dip your beer in melted butter? How do you not? It's got a picture of a lobster on it. No, just physically. Yeah, how do you no, do it? No, it's okay, very okay. difficult. I don't think it can be done. You could freeze it. But then when you dipped it into melted butter, it would solidify the butter on the outside of it and melt it a little bit. That's the worst of both worlds. <laughs> making a bad beer really gross. Even I'm worse. not the one who themed it that way. That's true.